Our text this evening is from Matthew chapter 17 and verses 22 and 23. We will read, however, the, the, the parallel passages in Mark 9 and Luke 9. So we turn to them first, Mark 9, 30 through 32, first of all. Mark 9, verse 30. Then they departed from there, the disciples with Jesus, and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it, for he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and were afraid to ask him. And we go to Luke chapter 9, 43 in 44, Luke 9, 43, 44, and they were all amazed at the majesty of God. That is, here's the reaction of Jesus exorcising the demon from the one possessed, the paralytic who was possessed, who was this lunatic. They were all amazed at that, at the majesty of God seen in that. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now we turn to our text in Matthew 17 and verses 22 and 23. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. The context takes us from the sublime to the mundane, from heaven itself to this earth and earthly things. Recall that the first section in Matthew 17 records the awesome transfiguration of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he was glowing before the special disciples Peter, James, and John and was visited by Moses and Elijah, and God himself, who said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. From thence we learned of the great triumphs of Jesus and his glory on the earth, in his casting out demon from the paralytic who was brought to him by his father, the only son, son of Israel, who would be healed for the glory of Jesus in that triumph. After our text, we go, as it were, from heaven's transfiguration and this glorious triumph to this earth very quickly because the subject is taxes. And verse 24 and following speak of the subjects, uh, uh, the, uh, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of heaven, and how we are to do with paying the tax, the tax of Caesar, the tax also of the temple. So we go from the sublime, the 
the very mysterious and heavenly vision to the earth and taxes and the things that are as certain as taxes, to be sure. But in the middle of all of this, this from down to earth, there is this very important lesson that Jesus would give in the second of three announcements by him of his death and of his resurrection. He announces his death and then that the third day he will rise again and there's his sorrow. He had announced this in Matthew 16 and this was with regard to the necessity of his dying. He must suffer, he must rise again. Our text simply indicates that there's a certainty about his suffering. He will suffer and a certainty about his resurrection, the Son of Man who suffers, will rise again. So we want to consider this very important incident in Jesus' life and in the disciples' learning, because in the midst of the great transfiguration down to the taxes, there's this lesson on trust, lesson that would lead the disciples to trust in him and in his word. Trust in him who will certainly suffer and die. Trust in him who will rise again the third day. This is the response that Jesus would elicit here from the disciples who were full of sorrow and they were afraid to ask what Jesus meant by this. They didn't understand it as the parallel passages indicate. This, I say to you, beloved, is also the lesson we must learn from this passage, to trust in Jesus, to trust in the one who sheds his blood for sinners, who dies for them, and to trust also that he rises again. And so we want to consider the apparent strangeness of the disciples sorrowing at the announcement of the gospel, because Jesus here announces the gospel. He announces the good news that he will die for sinners, and he announces the good news that he will rise again for those sinners. Yet all the disciples can feel at this moment is exceeding sadness. They are overwhelmed by sadness at this announcement, as if they don't get it. Let's consider that. First of all, we understand here, or we want to consider this good news that's announced And then consider the question, is this an ungodly sorrow? Should the disciples have been sorrowing at this time? Should we have any grief as we consider the announcement of the gospel? And then we want to consider the words of Luke, where Luke records that Jesus at this time said, now you let these words sink down in. He wants us to get it. He wants you to get it. And he wants me to get it and hold it tight. Let it be put down in our hearts in a secret place there to contemplate the words of his death, the words of his resurrection. And then we want to consider that aspect of this unique announcement of the certainty of his death and and his resurrection. For I find in this that there is a certainty also that we shall suffer, but then afterwards glory. So what about this? First of all, let's remember, Jesus is announcing here nothing less or different than the gospel, the good news of the Bible. 
It's good news, yes. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day, he will be raised up. I say it's good news because the Bible in the New Testament speaks of this as God himself delivering Jesus over into the hands of wicked men to accomplish atonement. This is what this announcement is all about. It's not any ordinary death, we know. This is the Son of Man of Daniel, to whom will be given from the ancient of days the kingdom of heaven, and who will triumph over all the kingdoms of this world. He is the King of kings. He is the ones whom the prophets foretold would come and suffer and would rise again, and he would see the success of his ministry in the resurrection of the, of the dead from himself and of many who follow. This is the good news of the Son of Man indeed delivered, betrayed wickedly into the hands of mere men, and even into the hands of Gentiles, Pilate and Herod and so on, which to a Jew, which was the worst kind of a death, to be delivered over into the Gentiles' hands, that's, that's almost the impardonable death, the, the, the most uh, ignominious and ignoble and shameful death that somebody could, could uh, undergo, and Jesus would be delivered into such hands of such men. I find here a great contrast between the Son of Man in all his purity and glory, the transfigured one, the one who is at the right hand of God now, and the men into whom Jesus is delivered, into whose hands Jesus is delivered. Sinful hands, conniving hands, doing the will of evil hearts and of the devil and of demons. That's the contrast. That son of man betrayed betrayed treacherously by a Judas and denied by his disciples and they flee from him into the hands of wicked men. So this, however, is the good news because God is sovereign over it all. Don't we understand, beloved, as we've seen this morning, partook of the sacrament this morning, as we heard this morning of the one great word of God that God has given, that the death of Jesus is all that we're about proclaiming because it's the wonderful atonement of Jesus. It's your salvation and mine. It's the gaining of the right to life by the righteous one in our place, obedient to the law that we could not keep, and in our place punishing or being punished the wrath of God for the condemnation that we deserve. That's the good news. There's nowhere else to find this than in the gospel that records these things, the words of this word of God, who is the wonderful Lord of the universe and the Lord of his church. He dies. The Son of Man is about to betrayed, be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. Hallelujah, we say. Praise God. God's behind the business. God is the sovereign one. God is the good one. God's love is betrayed, portrayed here, as well as his justice and holiness. God is God, 
in this death of Jesus. The death of Jesus is the death of death. And for the scurrying of the devil and the demise of the devil upon whose head Jesus trounces when he dies and rises again. But then there's his resurrection. The third day he will be raised up. It's as if the disciples missed that. All they heard was that in three days Jesus would be, or that Jesus would be betrayed and they would kill him. You ever go to a lecture or hear somebody maybe on the phone who's trying to sell you something and you hear something right away and then you turn them off or you hang up and you say, I don't need to listen to this anymore. I know what it is and it's all bad or it's all not waste, worth my time. Somehow the disciples didn't even make it to the resurrection. They were exceedingly sorrowful. Their sorrow was not mixed. They were sad as the most grievous of people at that time. This was their Savior, or they thought was their Savior. Dying? They couldn't get it. But Jesus insists he will be raised up. He will be raised up. Jesus insists on this. There's a certainty here that's brought out. There is death and there is the seeming triumph of the devil and the wicked of men. But Jesus will be raised up. He will conquer death and that as the representative head of the church of Christ. He dies and he's the son of man who is the savior of men. And he lives, and then he goes to glory, and we go to glory because he lives, and he goes to glory. This is certain, and it's certain exactly because, as Jesus said in the first announcement, it's necessary. And necessity, you see, is the counsel of God. God had decreed that Jesus would go to the death. That's why he must and that's why he will suffer and he will die. This is the word of God as well. This is the necessity of this. The Bible says that the Messiah must suffer and then he must rise again. Jonah says this. The types in the shadows point to the death of one for many and to the life of one whose life is the life of many. There is this amazing necessity that God will be God even in the crucifixion. The word of the prophets, they prophesy of the suffering and the glory of Christ that would follow, and here it is. There will be this coming to pass because it must be so, it will be so. This is the word of the Lord. So this is the gospel the gospel of the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus, the gospel of this being a sure thing of a faithful God into the hands of sinful men, even heathen. The cursed death will be Jesus, but this is the great cross of Calvary, God's cross. And the shepherd will be slain for the sheep there. So that brings up the question, why 
were the disciples exceedingly sorrowful? We have to deal with that question. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem that they were being exemplary here. So do we want to say this? Is this ungodly sorrow? The Bible speaks of that, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. There's a sorrow of the world that's ungodly. And then there's a sorrow that is godly, which leads to repentance not to be repented of. But is this something to be repented of? This sorrow, or is it a godly sorrow? Well, beloved, I want to say at the outset that it's not to be perceived as a worldly, godly sorrow. There's something here of the disciples being exceedingly sorrowful, which is natural and understandable. In fact, they didn't understand what Jesus was saying, not about his death, nor about his life. And we need to cut them some slack as we assess what their reaction is to the gospel. We react on the other side of Pentecost and the full revelation of all of the rest of the New Testament. That's a commentary basically on Jesus' death and resurrection. They didn't have that. It wouldn't be until the Holy Spirit's poured out the Spirit of Jesus who would lead them into all truth, especially this truth of His suffering, death, and resurrection, that they would actually know this and proclaim this. But here they don't know this. And they don't proclaim it. Jesus doesn't want them to. They're not ready. They don't understand this. In fact, Luke, I think, is the one who says that This was hidden from them. Not hidden as a judgment, but hidden because they weren't ready to receive it. Jesus kept them from understanding this certainly until by and by his plan would be accomplished and the method of his instruction would continue in the Holy Spirit poured out. Now, there's something hidden from them, something basic. You say, wow, That's hard to to take. Why is Jesus teaching them this? Well, certainly it's to remind them that he knew where he was going. And he is the prophet here who's prophesying of his own demise and his own glory, his resurrection. So they would reflect upon this and say, well, this wasn't a mistake of Jesus. This wasn't just wicked men uh, mangling Jesus and manhandling Jesus. No, this is God handling Jesus and Jesus handling himself, thank you, all the way volunteering to the death, and himself raising himself as well as the Father raising him. So they don't understand this, and it's understandable their lack of understanding. And we should see this in the light of the fact that they are before Pentecost and that these things are hidden from them. However, There's something else that we ought to know here. As Mark and Luke point out, it's not only that they were not understanding, but they were afraid. The disciples were afraid at this time to ask Jesus what he meant by this. The fear here is not a good fear. 
They should never fear Jesus to, uh, to have something that they don't want to hear or that they're afraid would be a rebuke. But when they fear him at this time, and they were doing this, I think they're afraid of being exposed for their ignorance, maybe being rebuked like Peter was, who at the first announcement said, that's not good for you, Lord, Get, you shouldn't do that. And Jesus said, you have a devil, get behind me. Maybe they're afraid. That's all in the background here. Uh, beloved, I, I believe that this, this is uh, not good for them to be afraid. It has to do, therefore, with their will as well as their ignorant minds that they don't know. They're not wanting to know something here. You see, remember, they've drunk deeply of the lessons of the scribes and the Pharisees. They're apart, even though called to be different from this perverse and wicked generation which Jesus has just rebuked for its unbelief. They themselves don't have the faith to cast out every demon. They don't understand the power of the gospel is alone their power, and Jesus is alone their power, and they cannot do anything without him. They are part of this unbelieving generation, even though they've been led as blind people by the blind scribes and Pharisees who bear the greater responsibility. They are this people that refuses to believe that Jesus, the Messiah, will die for sins and rise the third day for those sinners and establish a kingdom that way. What kind of king? falls on his own sword before he has anything uh, of a success or what we would call success. What kind of a king is that? Judas, of course, had a reprobate sorrow here, but the other godly people, which the other disciples were, they had the same kind of carnal notions of a kingdom. They didn't understand and so Peter in the garden picks up a sword. I'm going to cut off the, the servant's ear. And that'll be how the kingdom comes. They're still thinking. It's by bullying. It's by all of this. It's by the sword. It's, this is how the kingdom comes. No. They didn't get that. They were missing the blood of the lamb. More on that presently. Missing the very fact of why Jesus was there which was to call sinners to repentance and not those who need no physician who are righteous in themselves. Now, we know this, but let's understand there was an ungodliness about this sorrow, therefore. They were seeing Jesus as someone whom they hoped would deliver Israel, and when he died, there they are, and the two men on the road to Emmaus are the epitome of that, and they talk with Jesus, though they don't know it's Jesus, and they say, well, we hope that he would be the next Messiah, but our hopes were dashed to pieces. He was crucified. Don't you know all of this? They were just men, too. They were a part of the crowd, and only by the grace of God delivered from that madding crowd that would crucify Jesus, whose hands would take him instead of a Barabbas and kill him to show their desires and their hopes that they were pinned upon a man just like the king of the nations. 
Well, I wonder sometimes, because they were not only ignorant, but afraid of Jesus, if this is why Roman Catholic Church exalts Mary, There's a lot of reasons why the Roman Catholic Church has developed its Mariolatry. It's nothing short of idolatry. They call her a redemptrix, a female redeemer. Sinless, someone who was assumed into heaven without dying, and all of these other lies about Mary, who needed that babe to be born for her and to pay for her sins. One of the reasons that the Roman Catholic State Church, over a billion strong, being called numbers strength, one of the reasons why they say they they want Mary plus Jesus is because Mary's kinder. Mary's a mother, after all. And Jesus doesn't seem to be very kind here at this time. Just harsh, just the facts. Not concerned about the feelings, just the facts. The Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day will be raised up. Now, if Mary was explaining this, or her mother, I speak as a fool, you might think she'd say, but don't you worry, children. Don't you worry. It'll all be all right. No need to be afraid of this. Let me explain it a little bit. And somehow sugarcoat maybe the cross and explain ways they can understand this cross, and Jesus doesn't do that. He just speaks the truth here in a phrase or two and hides the rest from them, risking, of course, if he can say the Savior risked anything, Allegiance to just himself. In spare the hard word of the gospel, the basic word of Christianity, that Jesus is the crucified one and the risen one, and that the two, they go together. You need a crucifixion and a crucified Lord for sin in order for there to be a resurrection and the conquering of the grave. The disciples didn't get Mary, though. They got Jesus and praised God. That's all they got, Jesus. And all we have, Jesus, praise God. And just his words about his work, about the fulfillment of prophecy, about the shame and the spitting and the treachery in the hand of God, saving sinners. That leads to our letting this word sink in. Letting this word sink in. That's what Jesus tells the disciple. You, you better do that. Let this word sink in. Sink down. Luke 9 They were all amazed at the majesty of God, but while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words, 
the words that are going to come now, sink down into your ears, these words, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Let these words sink down. Or we could translate, put those words down that I tell you about my death and then resurrection only after the death. You put them down in a secret place in your heart. You hold them close. Let them sink down and into your hearts, into your ears, but into your heart. Hold on to these words. I'm prophesying of something very important. In fact, it's the key aspect of my ministry. I'm going to die and then rise again. And in that, what Jesus is seeking to do here is to remind them that there's something more than sorrow, something far more important than sorrow as a godly reaction to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The disciples were exceedingly sorrowful. But if they would only take to heart the words that he says, and then afterwards reflect upon them after he died, and after he rose again, and there's the message of the angels of the empty tomb, well then, their reaction would be something far different based on truth, the truth of the love of God behind it all, the truth of the faithfulness of God behind it all, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the the very best word of God. We heard that this morning. The very best that God can say. Here's Jesus. The cosmic Jesus. He's given the whole universe as his inheritance. He is the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He's the effulgence of the glory of God, the express image of his person. He upholds all things, having made all things by the word of his power. And he's suffering when he dies, and he's killed by men and mangled by their hands. He dies and purges us from our sins And because of this, there's a greater thing going on than the inglorious bastard sons of men having a way with Jesus. There's the glorious God having his way with the way that he has proposed and ordained Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Let those words sink down that I'm saying to you now. How do you do that? How do you do that? There's a hint at what Jesus is getting at in this whole thing by announcing as a kind of pre-announcement of his death and resurrection so that the disciples even later would do something more than be exceedingly sorrowful. If you look closely at Luke 9, there's a people that reacted to the exorcism of the Savior. He threw the demon out of the Savior. 
and he gave the child back to his father all healed. At that time, in Luke 9, 43, we read that the people who witnessed this were all amazed at the majesty of God. They were amazed at that show, that flash of divinity. Never one had been to the earth who was such a miracle worker, who was such this God among us. Never seen it before. And when he flashed his power and his wisdom, they knew that God was among uh, among them. They were all amazed at the majesty of God seen in Jesus. You see, it wasn't here just Peter, James, and John, the privileged three up on the Mount of Transfiguration, but when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration into this nasty world, he showed that God could be God even among us and even here, this low to dwell among us. They were all amazed at this. But then, while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, that's when he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. You put them in there, you lodge them into your ears, in your heart, in your understanding. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now here is Jesus speaking of the gospel being a stumbling block. Everyone's amazed at the majesty of God. Everyone cheers on Jesus who reflects the majesty of God in an exorcism, a healing, a resurrection or two of somebody else. But when Jesus will die, people stumble over that. The gospel is a stumbling block. People don't get that. The disciples were exceeding sorrowful about that. And if they were exceeding sorrowful about that, you can imagine what normal human beings not called into the fellowship of Jesus would be about that. We don't like that. And when they're informed even more that this Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men for sinners and because of sin, people don't like that. We don't need someone to die for us, thank you. What is this about a resurrection and another life that I'm leading? I don't need that. That's not scientific. That takes me beyond my comfort zone, beyond the measurements, beyond the Richter scales, and beyond even flying objects. It's way beyond my world. People stumble at that. But Jesus says, let my words sink down. Let my words sink down for a faithful response to the gospel, my gospel, my death, and my resurrection. So we're taught here by implication, don't you stumble at the blood. It's not about just glory, either the, either the transfiguration glory or even the glory of, of heaven somewhere by and by. It's about glory through blood. We must be theologians of 
of the blood. As Luther used to say all the time, we need the blood. Can't have glory, can't have a triumphant Christianity with, with no blood of Jesus, not just our blood, his blood for us, something we could not shed to take care of the problem. His blood. Preach the blood. And with regard to Jesus' death, therefore, you have a proper response. We should. And the proper response would take you once again to the house of mourning. I visited that yesterday and taking you to that in the sermons today. Bear with me to use this passage from Ecclesiastes. It reminds us that it's better to go into the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. That's the end of all men. The living will take it to heart. That is, death is. And then the wise man says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart's made better. The heart of the wise is in the heart of mo- house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Beloved, though there is some real questions about the sorrow of the disciples here, there's something that we ought to have as we respond to the message of the cross and resurrection, and that is, first of all, a godly sorrow. There's nothing wrong with that, to be the ones who lead the way even with a godly sorrow when we consider the cross. And when we are in the fellowship of the people of God, let's call that the house of God. The Bible calls us the house of God. May it be there for a house of, of mourning, In this sense, because we are told from the word of God in every Sunday that the reason why Jesus was crucified was because of your sins and my sins. And that ought to cause us to grieve. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The psalmist asked, the hymnist asked, I was there. Nail in the cross, or the Savior to the cross, shouting, crucify him. You were too. The beast of humanity was there. The fallen race was there. And they were glad to be rid of him. That's why we grieve. And when we still sin, and we do, that just shows But by the grace of God, we're just the crucifiers, the men and the women and the children who take Jesus and manipulate him into our own Savior, our own person that we like, who's a comfortable Savior, doesn't make us uncomfortable, doesn't say you are the sinner. So this is how we let the words sink in. That's what I'm saying. Jesus wants the words of his demise to sink in. And what I'm 
declaring to you is that it will be so that there's a godly sorrow. And if there's going to be a godly sorrow, you have to go to the house of mourning because it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of mirth and feasting where nobody cares about the suffering of Jesus. They just care about their own suffering and they want a palliative. They want a cure. They want some scientist to say this, some expert to say vaccine, some this guy to say that, and here's a way to peace in Ukraine. And the sorrowing of Jesus, never thought of that as something much. If anything, it's just a tragedy that a good man died for a good cause, maybe. Though they say the real tragedy is that people actually made him God and made him someone to pray to and made him everything and the only Savior, something they should not have. That's their blasphemy of the Word of God. A beloved, in the house of mourning, you learn about the worth of the cross and the worth, therefore, of the Savior. And therefore, there's this resolution, godly sorrow, yes, when Jesus announces he must die and he will rise again, but first he must die because of our sins. There's a resolution or a coming around to the end of Jesus, the goal of Jesus, which is our life. And this makes us happy in the house of mourning. Lo and behold, our church becomes a house of joy. House of God and a house of joy. A house where it's pronounced sinner, you're forgiven. Every single one is forgiven for whom Jesus died. And as we trust in him, we, we know this. And as we rise up from the table, we have no doubt whatsoever that Jesus is ours. And he's there for sinners just like you and just like I am. Hypocrites, deceitful, liars, gossips, slanderers, whoremongers, haters, wasters of times, gamesters, all these things we are. Did I miss you? Did I miss any sin of yours? We're all here, sinful. But Jesus is all here, Savior. The best word of God to you and to me spoken. Now, beloved, this is something, therefore, we don't want to stumble over in going to the house of mourning where there's this People that understands what mourning is all about, there is this blessedness of the mourners, Jesus says in Matthew 5, for they shall be comforted in the knowledge of Messiah. So Jesus is concerned that we get this. He wants us to have these words drop into our hearts, into our ears and into our hearts so that we glorify him as the God who needs be crucified and then will be raised up for our salvation. Well, beloved, so there's 
this response that will be, as the words sink down and as we believe them, a godly sorrow and a godly, not giggly, not giddy, but a godly joy. I'm so glad, and the elders are so glad that we see this here. This is the main thing in a congregation. Godly sorrow, godly joy. Not a morbid sorrow that just stays sorrowful and exceeding sorrowful and doesn't get it and thinks more about sin than about the Savior. Neither a giddy joy that forgets the Savior and and forgets sin and has some other idea of the success of Christianity and of the gospel, but this godly combination, sorrow and joy. When the words you see of Jesus sink in, it's one word. It's one word. It's this is the way, the way of the cross, the way of resurrection, the overcoming. It's been the way ever since God created the worlds by Jesus and for him that he might come into the worlds and into our planet and into our Grand Rapids. He comes and his way is this, suffering first, the glory afterward. And it's certain. Beloved, that means for us who believe these things, and if they surely these words do sink down into us, that this will be certain of us too. We will suffer for the sake of righteousness and the declaration of the truth of the suffering and risen Savior. You ready for that? Are you ready? Are you anticipating that this will be the lot of the Christians exceedingly in these latter days? When God has spoken his best word, the devil always comes with his best word, which is always a lie. And as God speaks through us his best word, Jesus Christ, and as we show this word in our lives in godly sorrow, but godly joy and godliness, we get hit. We get mocked. We get Ignored and worse, mocked and ridiculed and pushed out of society, out of the church, the giddy church, the laughing church, the church of great self-esteem, the false church. That's certain. But just as certain is our victory, beloved, as the victory of Jesus. That's the word of the Lord. Our victory in Jesus is absolutely sure. You have your problems, I have mine. We have difficulties. We have things that seem worse than death in our our lives. But Jesus Christ is crucified and risen. Believe that word. It's the best word that God ever spoke. Speak the word now and live according to it. Amen. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we hear this word. May it sink into our ears and hearts. We take it to heart. God bless Sovereign Grace Church, every one, every family, and all of us together, one family, gathered every Lord's Day and every day. 
at the foot of Jesus. Lord, we thank you with all our hearts for the cross. We mourn because of that need of redemption by the blood of Jesus because of our sin. But we rejoice that grace has conquered sinners. And you have appointed the way that is absolutely beautiful. The best word that anyone could say, the word of our salvation, of God with us. Be with us, Lord, this week. As we part ways, may we not part ways. May we meet together every day at Jesus' feet. May we cast our burdens upon him, Lord, as you have promised to receive us who cast our burdens upon you. Hear our prayers. Give us to pray. Give us, Lord, not to be afraid of you, but to ask of you. If we need wisdom, oh, to ask and to receive as we ask in faith, trusting completely in the Messiah, our lovely Lord Jesus, our God and our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.